So for today's scripture, um, it's 1 John 2, 13 through 14, and it reads, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. A place for the coffee, a place for the schedule, so I don't keep you for two hours. <laughs> And a place for the notes. And good morning. So I just want to um, pray first. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And Lord, I admit that I am just a, a silly human. And I ask you, Father, to guide and direct your words and your wisdom. I thank you for being the creator of the universe and giving us creativity in ways to study your word, but may it be your word first and not mine or anyone others. Thank you, Lord. So happy Father's Day. And if you're not a father, happy child of a Father's Day. <laughs> and if you're viewing remotely, happy virtual Father's Day. So that doesn't make you a virtual father, it just makes you a real father and of real children. And I'm glad that you're not here and you are with your kids. So I'll start off a bit with who is my dad? So what you're gonna to hear today is gonna to be a little bit of a testimony, some of my own history and the word of God as we go through looking back at who our father is. In short, my father was my hero. He loved flying. Um, he was born early in last century, and he loved flying from the time he knew about airplanes. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York. He worked for the Western Union as a delivery boy on a bicycle, and he got up before dawn in 1927 to ride out and see Charles Lindbergh take off from New York for the first transatlantic flight from New York to Paris. He eventually joined the army and uh, he never had more than a ninth grade education and he became a mechanic, an aircraft mechanic. And he first soloed in 1934, got stationed in Hawaii and while he was there, he worked on Amelia Earhart's airplane when it was doing the first solo crossing from Hawaii to Oakland. So he's got some serious history in terms of being a, his love for airplanes and his association with it. Um, 1940, he got married to my mother. She, uh, I asked him once how they met, and uh, she said, oh, well, I was at a party, and he was the one doing headstands in the corner. So he definitely had a sense of humor. They uh, had a wedding. And uh, immediately afterwards, he was sent to Puerto Rico. And there, they lived in an old plantation house. And every morning, he'd fly out, he'd, uh, go out to fly reconnaissance uh, for the Army Air Corps. And there were two smokestacks on the uh, plantation house. And he would fly his plane straight at the smokestacks, 
turn sideways and go right through them every morning to salute his wife with his airplane. Because they've been flying for, um, since 1934, when the war broke out, they never sent him to the front lines. Instead, they made him an instructor of other fighter pilots. He uh, was an instructor of the Chinese National Air Force fighting against the Japanese. He was an instructor for several of the um, uh, military in Tallahassee, Florida, and so on. They jumped from place to place. And, by, and then for the Korean War, he flew transports and cargo between Hawaii and Japan during the war. By the time I was born, he'd already served almost 30 years, yeah, seemed like, yeah, almost 30 years in the Air Force, and he retired as a, a lieutenant colonel. In between the wars and afterwards, he was an airline pilot, which I liked because I got some free flying. I got to go to Hawaii for free. Occasionally, I'd take off as a high school kid to Hawaii and then hitchhike around the islands and so on. Uh, in 1962, he was flying DC-3s and there was a, a storm and uh, rain was just pouring down horribly. He was flying telephone linemen from San Francisco up to Oregon to take care of down uh, power and communications lines. And there was some mishap in the maintenance of the aircraft, which caused the tail to fill up with water in flight, shook, and the tail flew off while he was flying. And he took what he knew from flying biplanes and fighter jets, uh, fighter planes, and learned how to re relearned how to fly a plane with 51 passengers without a tail, using differential engine control in the airlines to relearn how to fly the plane while it's in flight and is able to land it at uh, Mather Air Force Base with uh, um, not a single soul hurt or injured. He was given the, uh, an FAA Flight Safety Award and made a member of the Order of Dedalians, which is a uh, select group which had uh, World War I aces in it, astronauts and um, major fighter pilots and so on. And uh, I never met the people that he met there, but there were the first uh, uh, Neil Armstrong and others. Um, so, you know, remember Captain Sully Sullenberger who landed on the Potomac? Yeah, that was my dad. So I told Mary I had three Kleenex, so I better last. So he was also really smart. As I mentioned, he, he had a ninth grade education. He taught himself physics, he taught him mathematics, he taught him all the, himself all the things he needed to become an officer and a fighter pilot. And for fun, he taught himself Japanese, Korean, and he even taught himself some Russian. Um, I learned a lot from him. He gave me a love of tools. He taught me how to rebuild an engine. He taught me how to use a lathe. He taught me welding. He taught me marksmanship. He taught me how to fly. Um, I soloed uh, before I even had my driver's license. But then I got my driver's license and went partying with my friends and never got my pilot's, my pilot's license. He gave me a, a wicked sense of dry humor. He gave me a, res a brain and a respect for it. He would tell a story of how, when he was a Golden Gloves boxer, he'd win every match, and one time he got hit really solid in the head, and he said, 
My brain is worth more than winning Golden Gloves games. Take care of your brain. He gave me a love of science. Um, he would bear with me when I would uh, take apart the loft in the garage and draw little um, control panels up in the rafters and I would go up and camp out for days because I was on a space mission. Um, he gave me a sense of integrity. He gave me a respect for the truth. He gave me a love for travel and a love for languages. My dad was my hero. Now we go to Proverbs 23, 24, and it says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. So I thought I had it. So in a way, you go, point of Proverbs, I have it made. Even though I was the youngest in my family, I was the first to graduate from college in at least four generations. But I did it mostly because I wanted nothing more than to make my dad proud. College was hard. It was really hard for me. But my dad also taught me some other things. He taught me to not trust religion. He would say, I feel closest to God when I'm in my airplane in the air. I want nothing to do with that hypocrisy and that made-up religion stuff. He mentioned God a lot, but usually followed by the words, damn it. <laughs> he was a bigot. He taught me to use humor as an avoidance mechanism. I learned that emotion was dangerous. I learned especially that anger was a dangerous emotion. I don't ever remember my father saying, I love you. He was one who would shake hands, he would not hug. Both my parents had become alcoholics, and I would go to bed with a pillow over my head so I couldn't hear them arguing and screaming at each other. My father died of cancer in 1982, he learned of the diagnosis uh, well, after we had visited Korea and Japan on a family trip to see the places where he had been and where my grandmother had served. And while he was sick, I came home every weekend. From work, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to feel. And he died just before Thanksgiving, 1982. I don't know if he ever received the Lord. That's between him and God. I prayed for him a lot, and I asked him again and again, and I pleaded with him to come to the Lord, and he says, my God is in the clouds, and that was his response. So in Scripture, Deuteronomy 5, verses 9 to 10, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. So what does it mean, excuse me, must be allergies, uh, since of the uh, father's visit to the third and fourth generations? Let's take a look at the alcohol, alcoholics, my mother and father. Uh, my mother was an alcoholic. My aunt died of alcoholism in a bathtub alone. My father started drinking heavily after mandatory retirement at age 60. The FAA didn't allow airline pilots to fly after that. 
um, age as uh, a passenger pilot. Um, his father was an alcoholic. My own father kicked him down the steps of their apartment building when he was 14 years old because of what he was doing to the family. I have a great uncle who served in World War I, and as an honor, they asked him to stay behind as a model for a statue they were building in their village to honor the Doughboys. They wined him and dined him and especially wined him, and he came back during Prohibition, and he died not long after, after drinking wood alcohol. So it's something that is prevalent in my family and has gone from generation to generation. I found out after my dad died that one of my sisters had had two pregnancies from two different men. And I just thought, oh, she's going to visit family back in the Midwest just to get to know family. I didn't know my mother had sent her there to have her babies, then go sent off to be adopted. She never told my dad because she felt it would kill him with the grief or that he might kill someone else because of his anger. My sister died a few years ago, a bitter, angry, frail, sick, and alcoholic woman living a dream life in a country club in the center of several social clubs on the East Coast. They had money, they had land, they had position, but she died miserable. My brother had been an alcoholic. He says he still is, but he's been sober now for 15 years, thank God. And it was the 12-step program that brought him out when he came to realize the higher power, but not until after it had destroyed his family and almost took his job. My mother was set free towards the end of her life after she had a heart attack and congestive heart failure. And I had a talk with the doctor and I asked him, can you please scare the pants off her? And he did, and she didn't have another cigarette or drink for three years, and we moved her up here and had her, she was in a retirement uh, community on the side of the lake, and it was like I got my mother back. When she finally passed away, my brother is crying, my sister was crying, family was crying, and I was joyful. And they go, why are you so, why aren't you crying, Mike? And I go, I'll tell you why, because my mother had already died and she was brought back to life. So, as an adult child of an alcoholic, you learn that even if you don't drink, you have learned a dysfunctional family system. You've learned how to ignore, learned how to hide, you've learned how to lie, even in the midst of a family that has issues. In Deuteronomy, it's talking about the iniquity of the father's visit to the third and fourth generations. And the iniquity it's talking about is following idols. And we have a lot of idols. We have idols of money, we have idols of greed, we have sex, we have idols of substance, whether it's alcohol or drugs, we have idols of our political parties, we have idols of science, we have idols of culture and tradition. My idols were science, my idols were substance and getting stoned and drunk, my idols were sex, although I didn't get too far there because I was a pretty awkward guy. So. Um, so the enemy is not omniscient. God is. The enemy, not being omniscient, 
has lots of strategies. For each one of us, he knows that if he knocks just one of us over, that like dominoes, as it says in Deuteronomy, it will follow from generation to generation to generation. And those generations beyond, he just leaves hands off and says, let man do the job. I've knocked one over, all the rest can fall. Um, some sins are more da dangerous than others. Sins of anger, sins of alcohol, sins of lying, sins of envy, murder, infidelity. And Jesus, the one he talks about the most in many different ways, is the sin of being self-centered as opposed to being God-centered. Because when the universe revolves around you, then you teach that to your children. When we look in Luke 11, 11 to 13, where he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So my father was far from perfect, my earthly father. He did give good gifts. And they may have, our fathers, our parents, may have taught us how to sin. They may have taught us how to follow idols of the world. They may have taught us anger. They may have taught us to not feel. They may have taught us to disrespect others. They may have taught us bigotry. They may have taught us and taught us, and the list goes on. We learn family systems. We learn family ways to communicate that are not of Christ. Jesus said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So each of us has sinned, and when we sin, it drives us away from God. And so we all need to be adopted. So whether you are a father or a child of a father, you still need to be adopted. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So when we give our hearts to the Lord, he also sends his promise of the Father. And so as orphans, we go to John 14, 8, and says, I will not leave you as orphans. So we will be adopted when we turn to him. God loves the fatherless. Fatherless or orphan appears over 40 times in the Bible, almost always with God as a protector of the orphan, seeking out the orphan, and bringing life to the orphan. So what does it mean to be adopted? Galatians 4, 4 to 7. I'm going to start in verse 1. So I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, earthly father. In the same way, also, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law 
so that we might receive adoption as sons, or adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are heirs through God when we come to Jesus. If you are wandering in the wilderness, anchored down by the sin you inherited from your earthly fathers, or your own sin that ensnared you, or that you actively pursued, and that is now dragging you down, you need to take the first step. Jesus has been calling you all along to himself to be set free, to come unto him and enter into his kingdom as an heir and to be adopted by the Father of Heaven, the King of the Universe, the Master of all time. And you might learn a few things that your earthly father never taught you. So in Luke 15, 11 to 24, there's a story of the prodigal son. I mean, you all know the story, if you heard it in Sunday school, of the, the young man who wandered off, took all his possessions. So I'm going to skip a few verses, and we'll concentrate on the father's response. So in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that belongs to me. And you know the story from there. He wandered off, he spent all of his money on wine, women, and song. Today it'd be sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or take your pick of music, but the same thing has have been happening through the generations. And he finally wakes up and goes, what happened? Where am I? Um, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He woke up and he took the first step to make a decision to say, I need to ask him to forgive me. But while he was still a long ways off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father, in verse 24, said, My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So my earthly father... My dad never really hugged me. My earthly father never really celebrated me, or even any of his children for that matter. But our heavenly father forgets our sins. He forgives our sins. Things that my brother and sisters may have done that would have killed my father with grief, my heavenly father forgives. He runs out to greet us. Our Heavenly Father runs out to hug us, to celebrate that we have returned. We have returned from the dead. You know what? I think we need to celebrate all the fathers right now. And everyone, and everyone that is a child of a father needs to be celebrated. 
and all of us that are following after the Father in heaven. We need to celebrate our Father in heaven. Amen. Now what I want you to do is something that I did when I was a, first became a crazy Jesus freak. And I realized that I had a father that really loved me. So I want you all to close your eyes right now. And I want you to visualize being this little child. I want you to visualize God coming up behind you, placing you on a swing, and pushing you gently through the air. I want you to visualize him picking you up and holding you, hugging you, holding you up to the sky and telling you to your face that I love you, my child. I want you to hold on to that picture. If your father never did that, our God in heaven does. To you and your heart, he does it to your heart, he does it to your soul. If your father never said, I love you, our father in heaven says, I love you every day, every hour, every minute. If your father taught you things that are dysfunctional, that are not right, our father in heaven, when you ask him, keep reaching out to him, teaches you his way and his way to go. You can open your eyes now if you want. Um, so being a father is not super easy, earthly father. Um, for those of you that are fathers here and, and viewing remotely, I'm sure you've had a few times when you said, this is really hard. A baby is a bubbling bundle of that cries, keeps you awake, demands food, constant attention is messy, sometimes smelly, and leaks at both ends. Um, there's a lot of times, uh, uh, my wife Mary has worked with uh, a lot of mothers who their child doesn't have a father, who ran off because it's too hard. Mothers really have the hard work, and fathers, you need to celebrate that hard work, but it's not work that she should do alone. It should be shared, as we'll see in our, our regular weekly readings later on in, in Ephesians. To be good fathers and mothers, we need to dedicate our lives to God every day and continue to dedicate to them. In Hebrews, it talks about things that we do as we, we grow in God and seeking after him. And it takes discipline. So coming to the Lord and receiving his salvation is a free gift. Becoming a servant of God requires discipline. And in Hebrews 12, it says, do not grow weary. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faintless. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained. So don't grow weary. Being a father, being a dad is hard. Your child may have physical, psychological, or self-centeredness issues, that they may have been ensnared by sin in this culture or by their friends. So don't give up on them. Be disciplined, stick it out. When we sway from his way, we will be disciplined. And we are encouraged to go back. Go back to the word, go back to prayer, go back to repentance, go back to fellowship, go back to forgiveness. So we are disciplined by God and we need to discipline our children. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your child, children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to skip 1 Thessalonians and then go to um, to actually, I'm going to go over here, 1 Corinthians 4.14. So when we point out to our children that they need improvement, we are building them up to be warriors in prayer, warriors in love, agents of reconciliation, seekers of truth. As Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me, is what Paul says. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in the church. So Paul calls us to admonish and imitate, but you don't admonish them to make them ashamed of who they are. You are admonishing them and encourage your children to be proud of who they will become in Christ. So Amy Grant wrote a song back in 1979. So this is going back to like uh, the 80s. And uh, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, I tried to join, I joined jazz choir in high school so I could meet girls and I got kicked out because I sang flat all the time. So that didn't work out either. But <laughs> Amy Grant said, when people look inside my life, I want to hear them say, She's got her father's eyes, her father's eyes. Eyes that find the good in things when good is not around. Eyes that find the source of help 
when help just can't be found, eyes full of compassion, seeing every pain, knowing what you're going through and feeling it the same. And on that day when we will pay for all the deeds we have done, good and bad, they'll all be had to be seen by everyone. And when you're called to stand and tell just what you saw in me, more than anything I know, I want your words to be, she had her father's eyes, her father's eyes. So we started off with 1 John 2, 13 and 14. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So go out there, follow Jesus, grow more every day to become someone worthy of Christ that your children will imitate. Allow yourself to be disciplined by God so that you may discipline with mercy. And remember that God watches you through the eyes of little children, your little children. So grow in him. So back to Amy Grant. And on that day when we will pray for all the deeds we have done, good and bad, the law be had to see by everyone. And so for you, and when you're called to stand and tell just what they saw in you, more than anything you know, you want your words to be, you had your father's eyes, your father's eyes. Amen. So get your communion elements ready. And I always have to figure out which layer does which on this here. So Stephanie's got communion elements if anyone needs any. So now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And drink, thank you, Lord. <clears throat> 